we're working on the basis of communicate, communicate and communicate again. There isn't one thing that's going to solve everything, it's going to be a collection of different things. You have to align the technology to the pathway, not the pathway to the technology. To make all this happen, we wanted the leadership from ICSs to improving their service design and the flow within their areas. Welcome back to the National Health Executive Podcast, giving you views, insight and conversation with leaders from across the health sector. I am your host, Louis Morris. Hello and welcome back to National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast. I am your host, Louis Morris. Today, we're going to be talking all about treatment pathways and how we can make them better and what needs to be done with regards to that. Now, we have been away for a while, so we thought we'd have to make our return a really good one. So today, I'm delighted to say, joined by the Migraine Trust Chief Executive, Rob Music, NHS England and NHS Improvement Programme Director for Outpatient Recovery and Transformation, Sue Moore, and last, but certainly not least, AbbVie's Head of, Head of Medical Affairs for Immunology, Richard Millward. Now, before we do get started, I think it's always good to get to know our guests a little bit better. So starting with Rob, then Sue, and then finally Rachel, in your own words, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and where you come from. Thanks, Louis. Uh, I'm Rob Music. I'm Chief Executive of the Migraine Trust. Uh, so the Migraine Trust is, is the lead UK charity supporting people living with migraine, in which there's an estimated 10 million people living with the disease. Um, so it's uh, it's recognised by the World Health Organisation as one of the most uh, impactful uh, conditions around. But yet, there are some, certainly some some major challenges uh, in terms of the UK in terms of getting the right pathways in place and, and care and treatments for people living with migraine. So really looking forward to having a conversation today about how we can improve that. Fantastic, Sue. Thank you, everybody. And um, uh, my name's Sue Moore. I'm Programme Director for Outpatient Recovery and Transformation at um, NHS England. And I guess what I would say is the programme looks at two two key issues. One is how we um, address the, the backlog of patients who are waiting for treatment as a result of, of the pandemic. But more importantly, and a sort of part of that is how do we transform pathways so they are fit for the future for, for patients and meet the expectations of the public? Absolutely. Rachel? Hi everyone, um, my name is Rachel Millward. Um, as already introduced, I'm Head of Medical Affairs for Immunology. By immunology, we mean um, we traverse a number of different therapeutic areas such as gastroenterology, rheumatology and dermatology. Um, it's a really exciting topic, it's a really hot topic to be discussing here about um, all of the transformational care that's going on in the NHS and perhaps how pharmaceutical uh, companies could partner closely and better with the NHS stakeholders. Absolutely. And so to kick us off, as the challenge of the backlog remains and we enter the traditionally busy winter period, I've, I've heard people call it a twindemic, a triple-demic, you know, there's a spate of different issues that are sort of combined in. So with that said, what changes are being made to the way in which elective and outpatient care is delivered to help services tackle this rising demand? I think that the first thing that, that we would all recognise is that that we've all come through um, unprecedented times and, you know, you hear it on, on the news on a daily basis that, um, you know, health services um, and that, that spans the entirety of health services. People have been working really hard um, uh, in this space. And I think particularly in outpatients and, and, and often outpatients is the service that's that's not often mentioned. So, I think when we talk about people on the waiting list, the public often think that this is about people actually waiting to come into hospital for operations. And actually, we know that that is a relatively small number by comparison to the totality of the waiting list. So 
around sort of between 16 and 19 percent of the waiting list is waiting for inpatient procedures where somebody would need to stay in hospital um, versus I think around sort of between five about 5.5 5.8 million people who are in that sort of that sort of that pattern of outpatient appointment some of those are waiting for appointments some of them are waiting to understand what their treatment's going to be and some of those patients are being followed up so the outpatient program is looking at how we can create capacity by looking at alternatives so one is um, developing a process whereby patients who are clinically suitable can initiate their own follow-up rather than giving them a standardised um, appointment. The second is really maximising the use of technologies in this space, and there's advantages and disadvantages to that. I think, I think the other one is, um, and, it, and it's been much talked about, is, is, is how we can make sure that patients see value in going to appointments because the evidence base will say if someone feels better or doesn't see the value in attending appointment or they're frightened, then they won't go to that appointment. So how do you, how do you engage with the public in that, in that space? And I think that multi-pronged approach will hopefully create some capacity so that then patients who are almost the unknown group, and that's the group who are waiting for that first appointment, can be seen and um, can in effect then start their pathway to, to getting into the right treatment um, place. We know that the patients the feedback we've had, they like um, they like to understand waiting times, they like to understand the rationale for an appointment. And so um, we've done quite a bit of work in, in this space and, and I'm sure we can come on to that, but I'll, I'll let colleagues um, uh, pitch into the conversation, but just as just a flavour of some of the things we've been doing. Absolutely. Rachel? Yeah, I was going to say, I think Sue picks up on a really important point that there isn't one size fits all. I think there uh, there is a real need for a myriad of different programmes that will support different patients who need different things. Um, obviously, at AbV here, we've been trying to look at different ways in which we can support the NHS. And we've got a number of different um, pro programmes that are ongoing with partnerships with the NHS around things like triaging services in our eye care division. We've got um, blood monitoring services through our oncology division. We're also looking at ways in which patients can can self-monitor, self-assess their disease score, which is something that we're partnering from the rheumatology services, and also looking at teledermatology. Obviously, it's been highlighted potentially an area where um, technology could become much more at the forefront of, of care, a model of care. Um, but I would also echo Sue's uh, words around just asterisking that that this may not be right for everybody and we need to keep that in the front and centre of our mind as we as we partner with these initiatives. Uh, I guess from a, a migraine perspective, um, I guess the moment it's it's quite challenged. Um, the, I, I guess from the feedback from the people that we, we support and we care is, is that perhaps that the, the, there's not enough in, in terms of changes being made to that I guess to, to help the services tackle the rising demand and, and improve the, the patient flow. Um, we know that improving uh, treatment in primary care, both through wider GP training about migraine and a greater role for community pharmacy to ease burdens on, on hugely beleaguered GPs, um, we know that would ease the demand for emergency and elective admissions for migraines in hospitals. Um, and looking at those stats, so the 21-22 stats versus the previous year, we've seen a 32% increase in inhibition. So that's and that's really, really very significant. So I think it's um, 
almost higher than, say, congestive heart failure or or pneumonia. So it's really significant. Um, But we also know that there are some areas that have got some really excellent uh, specialists, migraine clinics in the communities. We need to learn from those. You know, they're run by GPs who've got a special interest or or specialist nurses, and I think they're really key for this. And that they're a really effective way of, I guess, seeing and supporting patients who need that particular care. However, they're not universal. yeah, so waiting times for some of these services differ across the country. So we need to look at how we can improve that um, and get that right pathway in place. And obviously, there's a hopefully fairly soon will be live a new sort of headache and facial pain pathway due to come out. And that's a really, I think, a great opportunity to look at how we can get consistency of approach across across the country. Absolutely. And I said, though, Rob, there needs to be more changes. But from the changes that have already been made, what results have we already seen in terms of? sort of capacity release and improving in patient experience and outcomes? There's, there's some really nice, I guess, um, ex- example, community examples. So, so there's, there's a, I guess, in, in Oxford, um, where there's a, a piece of work that's been run by a headache with, a, uh, sorry, a, a GP with a special interest. Um, and they've looked at almost trying to keep everything local, it's a bit, bit of a bit of a head, headache pathway there. Um, and, and based on that piece of work in, in making sure that not everybody is is, is naturally or, or, or referred to secondary care, because that's the key thing to try and avoid, try and keep keep the majority of, of cases should be diagnosed and managed in primary care. Um, they, they've seen a, a really quite significant uh, reduction in uh, in appointments. I think I think it was just under a thousand patients for being being uh, 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 freed up because of that, and and the patient is getting the better information, the better care, and, and locally. So I guess that's just just one example. I think of, of, of uh, I guess best practice that's out there that we need to learn from and try and extend wider. Absolutely, Rachel. I mean, from 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 Abby's perspective, it is quite early for us to to draw broad conclusions on the impact of the issues I mentioned earlier, um, but. I think making sure that we um, monitor and assess that impact so that we can scale it up and see how how else we can um, implement some of these initiatives. I guess one of the key areas that we're trying to establish is how do we, as a as an organisation, partner better with the NHS. I think there's still some finessing that needs to be done in order to to, to, to get to that uh, shared goal, which is ultimately to benefit patients and get patients through the system quicker. Absolutely. Sue? So- so, so I, I couldn't um, agree more in in all of this. So, so, so roughly speaking, on a, an annual basis, well, in twenty one twenty two, the NHS delivered ninety five million outpatient appointments, and if you if you do the maths on on, on that, I think. It wouldn't take, you know, it's small changes in terms of DNA rates. Um, using PIFU pathways optimally that could potentially create um, space um, to to see um, the backlog of patients, the 5.66 million. Now, if that was easy, it would have been it would have been done. And clearly it's not because we've got to do a number of things. So one and most importantly is we've got to be we've got to engage and have an honest conversation with patients about um, what the options and the opportunities are for them um, in in any any situation. Um, And I think. um, You know, we've, we've got to build that we build that trust in that in that space. 
But the other thing we've got to do is listen from the ground up because the clinicians and people who deliver the service know what needs to happen um, and we need to empower in that in that space too. So very much around empowerment. And and one of the ways we've 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 done this, it's a small initiative, but you may have heard of um we we normally called it Super September, where we we basically gave an opportunity to providers to to try small things. We gave permission to fail fast. Um and um and it had quite a profound impact. So so in the in the two week um period um through through Super September. Um, we saw there were over 66,000 more patients were were seen um, during that time, and we saw um, a well quite a significant increase in the patients who were the very longest waiters there. What what I would describe as their clock being stopped. So in effect, their their treatment um, had been delivered in that space. Now. What what I what I would say is that this was not one silver bullet. You know, it wasn't everybody did the same thing. It was what I said. It was people trying a whole range of things. So some people did some work on on DNA. Some people did work on validation of lists and, and asking patients if they still wanted or needed that appointment. Um, we did. Um, there was there was work on looking at how clinics are constructed and the templates. So a whole range of things, but it was owned. And so I'll go back to, what, to sort of where I started on this. This is about how we engage and empower because that will give the sustainable change that I think we're looking for in this space. Absolutely. I think just what I think it's really interesting, and I think that I think what you've given us, I guess, some, some really nice, beautiful examples. Um, I guess one of the challenges that we've got, I think, across not just across migraine, but but all other areas, is there are some amazing pieces of work um, and best practice. How do we pull those all together? Because I think some, and I think that that that's a challenge. It, it's a challenging opportunity at the same time, isn't it? Because if we can share those, people think, ah, oh, I don't start from scratch. And I, so whether it's that community service I mentioned in Oxford or other things, if we can pull those together, that could make a real difference. I think, Rob, if you don't mind me coming in, I think I think you hit the nail on the head there. I think we make assumptions that communication is straightforward and easy. And if you send out um, a document, everybody gets it. And we know that that just generally is not the case. And um, so certainly um, we're working on the basis of communicate, communicate and communicate again, linking with, um, I mean, just, just this conversation today has made additional links that that, that this that my programme didn't have. So very welcome. Um, but working with um, the regions of, of NHS England, but also engaging with primary care, with the Royal Colleges, with providers directly and giving them opportunities to showcase good practice. And as I say, giving those permissions to try something and see if it works and it might not have the intended consequence but knowing then that you're not going to be um you know sort of in a difficult position as a result of that so i couldn't agree more rob i think i think that's got to be the mantra communicate communicate and and if you think you've not communicated communicate a bit more absolutely and so with that said in terms of communication is that how we scale things up uh, from your perspective sue so so i think i think the communication's got to be, um, I think it's got to have integrity. I think it's got to be meaningful because, you know, you can get a whole series of quite bland 
letters, for example, and they don't mean anything. So a classic, I think um, we've been working with the Patients Association in, in this space is around and how you write to a patient so that it's meaningful to the patient. And, and do you write to the GP and copy to the patient or do you write to the patient and copy to the GP? And I think the evidence base would say write to the patient and copy to the GP, but keep it, keep the terminology um, meaningful and, and, and understand and, and understanding don't fall into into jargon. I think um, building trust around things like patient initiated follow up and, you know, one model won't fit all in this space. I think I said I said before that, you know, sort of working with clinicians to say which of the conditions that could 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 well fit in this in this route, but then applying it to the patient because patients present in in very different ways with very different demographic, and we've got to be mindful of that. Um, and fundamentally, when we have an idea, don't present it as fait accompli. Co-produce it and co-design because you'll have the ownership there. And and I think co-production, shared decision making are used very frequently. My experience from from working within mental health services, working in acute services, is that we often consult once we know the answer we want to achieve. And I think we've got to be brave enough to say, let's ask an open question um, in in this in this space and be open to to what the proposals may be. Absolutely, Rachel. How do we scale up? I think it's it's the holy grail, isn't it? When we see these pockets of success, um, obviously, when I talk about some of the conditions I mentioned earlier, um, these are there is a huge borders of pain. We're talking about 15 million patients with long-term conditions um, trying to access services. So that scaling up question is is so fundamental to allowing those patients to not have the disease progression that comes as a consequence of long-term um, conditions. Um, but also rethinking about the model of care and accessing different stakeholders of the MDT that may be more appropriate for their management um, and not perhaps going down the traditional path of, you know, seeing the physician every six months or whatever it might look like. Um, and also thinking about the outcome. What are the outcomes we're striving for? Are we looking for remission in rheumatology? Are we looking for clear skin or mucosal healing from a, from a gastro point of view? And how do we get there in order to keep patients out of the acute setting? Um, and these are the sort of the fundamental questions we're trying to ask ourselves when we're looking at partnering with the NHS to, to elevate those outcomes and allow patients to benefit ultimately. Absolutely. Rob? I think we think that oh, they're all very new. I never want to have, it's, it's a, have a conversation, but I think RCSs are, are just a, a huge opportunity moving forward. I know it's the, it's the first year and probably everyone left, right, centre is almost saying, oh, come and work with us because we're the most important disease area going. But I think it, it, and I think they've got to really understand how they're going to work and move forward. But it, it feels, in terms of migraine care, that that that, that feels like a, a, an obvious one in many ways. Um, you know, it, it's, it's an issue that affects so many of people within an ICS's population that, that I think one of the things that we'd like is that they all ensure that there is a lead um, who can review the needs and the, and the services um, and to make sure I guess those pathways that we talked about at a national and a local level that they're, they're all in place. So in some ways it's probably quite a, a simple thing to say I think in response but I think it, it does need that leadership and that a, a initial investment um, because actually that's going to save a lot of money in the long term if that pathway is bang on right very very early on. 
too. Yeah, um, so so both Rachel and, and Rob, I, I just couldn't agree more with you in this in this space. I think so one of the things I think we've got to, to really consider is that at the moment how patients are present into secondary care is often based on the specialty that they're referred to. And patients have multiple comorbidities and very complex lives. And so I think part of the early the early thinking, certainly from the programme, is how do we adapt pathways to ensure that we 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 take these multifactors into place? And obviously, both um, both of you have raised you know sort of those points really eloquently. So uh, I couldn't you know to say that you know we're we're in complete alignment with that. Absolutely, and this is something you've mentioned already. What role does technology play in enabling all this? So I think technology is is fundamental to this, um, but I think technology has to be um, accompanied with behavioural change and understanding. And you have to align the technology to the pathway, not the pathway to the technology. So um, I think that's really, really important. Um, you know, I think before the pandemic, video and telephone consultations were relatively rare. I would think now we're all pretty happy and conversant um, in in most 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 areas to 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 embark on a, a telephone or video um, call. We're doing it now. That's still not the case for everybody, and we need to be be cognizant of that. You know that for some people this is just not an option for a range of of reasons. But I think it's some of the back office as well. So you know the making sure that systems connect to each other, the single sign-on for one for a clinician, as an example, the, the ease of functionality, and, and also being aware that technology can be used in an asynchronous fashion. So, for example, where appropriate, you could send a form to a patient or to a clinician to fill in about um, particular circumstances, history and so forth. And that actually can can easily then be played into the the, the history and the, and the the information required to um, to really support um, a streamline of process. That's just an example. Absolutely. Rachel? Yeah, so um, I think what you said around the integration of technology into the pathway rather than building the pathway around the technology is so key. Um, You touched on remote consultations and making sure that they don't exclude people and I think that's that's a really an important point that needs to be to be made not all patients can or have the capability of engaging in a in a remote consultation we've got to make sure that that's taken into account but Equally, there are technologies out there that may allow patients who want to engage through technological um, solutions such as remote monitoring, so PROs, for example, um, and having the ability to utilise them and integrate them, to your words, so integrating them into the, um, the patient records so that the clinician who is monitoring that patient you know, remotely is getting real-time information that can make clinical decisions and seeing the patients who need to be seen rather than just on the, um, the annual cycle that tends to happen previously. And I think those little nuggets that we're starting to see is... Um, it's really quite exciting about how this could look for for patients who want to engage on that front. Yeah, I think I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I think lots of opportunities ahead. Um, I think yeah, the other thing about, I guess, the telehealth, I think we're all still learning. So, and, and I guess it's 
the right time in terms of each patient. It's, uh, there, there's some there's some research from the Neurological Alliance of uh, uh, Scotland um, where they did some research on on how patients were feeling about uh, the different options from you know in person to a video versus a call. Um, call was quite negative because they really wanted to have see that to the healthcare professional and 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 build that relationship. And then it was very much, I guess, you know, it sort of depended on was it the first first consultation versus a follow-up or what have you as to whether it felt okay to do videos. So I think there's a bit of a learning, isn't there, about what's the best to use within, I guess, the resourcing at the, at the same time. But definitely, I think it's, uh, I think we've all seen that it it, it can work and, and make things, I guess, easier and more efficient. Um, and, and I guess into, I guess, some of the data. Yes, yeah, so I, I guess I just, I've been thinking about you know that that very, very short time that someone in primary care has with a, with a patient so is there you know, I think things like headache diaries which are a really important resource to help help both the patient and their healthcare professional understand how things are going with the patient you know, if, if there's a way of, of, of filling in a headache diary online that goes to the GP before they have that conversation with that's going to speed up that that and the focus of, of that 10 minute conversation say look i've seen from this it, things are getting worse let's talk about what can we do otherwise most of that time could probably be taken up with talking about the headache diary and there's a whole bunch of patients in, in, in the surgery still to be seen so i think it, it, it's thinking about those, those sort of tools and and how they can interact in some way to improve the lot of the patient and and, and primary care yeah you know rob i think that it's really important at that primary care stage to have that um, that solution that will help patients who need to access the, the secondary care system get access. Um, we have seen with dermatology, for example, GPs utilising um, high resolution photographs of skin lesions and getting those triaged through specialists to allow patients who need to be seen, who need to be put into the two week referral pathway are put in the pathway appropriately and all seen, rather than um, patient all patients being pushed down that that pathway when it's not necessary. It may be that they, they could be seen elsewhere in a different clinic, um, and seeing the results of that is going to be um, crucial for the dermatology services to be successful in the future. I think. I think it's an interesting thought that because again, it terms of the connectivity, it shouldn't it shouldn't always have to be the GP. And I think there's obsession with GP, GP, GP in terms of primary care. So I guess going back to that, you know, the, the, the thought about a, a, a headache diary, it could be that information goes through and actually it goes to the, to the pharmacist, the GP, or it goes to a local pharmacy, and they can have that uh, maybe a better, longer, more helpful conversation. So again, it's about how that all works together for the best outcomes for that person in the, in that community. Based on what you said there, Rob, is that the future of healthcare, that sort of proactive, preventative type of care, if that's what you'd call it? I think it definitely feels like it's, if we can make it work, um, it, it makes absolute sense to explore that. I mean, I, I'm I'm non-techie, non-clinician, so I'm not very clever at these things, uh, uh, but it feels as if, if, if something like that, that could work. It will, it, will, it will be absolutely fantastic. I mean, to the Migraine Trust, we're focusing a lot more about how we can work closer with pharmacists because you know GPs are absolutely overloaded and, and I think they're very much an underused and really important group of people um, you know that they see people coming into the pharmacists one terms of picking up prescriptions to potentially not noticing 
people coming in regularly for OTC. So there's the risk of and sing, you know, things like, you know, um, overuse in terms of uh, 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 my uh, overuse in terms of OTCs and then man managing managing that at the, at the same time and having that conversation. Um, so, so I think it's how technology can fit in terms of almost then sending the patient to the right, having the right conversation with the right person. Um, and as I said before, we've really got away. I, I do feel there's been an obsession, maybe with the public as much as anyone else, that GPs are the holy grail with everything. Uh, and actually, there are many people out there that, that, that the public can have a conversation with that can improve and speed up their healthcare. Rob, if you don't mind me saying as well, I, I think I think you know again you've hit the both of you have hit the nail on on the head with this. I think our relationship with with the public in terms of what it what's what's available, um, it goes back to that communicate, communicate, and communicate um, piece. But also there is there's something about how we enable patients to be as well as they can be for the procedure that they may ultimately need to have because there's there's you know what you don't want is for example to be you know to know that you may need say for example a joint replacement but actually that you're not potentially fit enough and to, to to be in that space and be told to go away so so why not you know have that conversation you know sort of early on so that that somebody can arrive knowing that they they are likely to need something but they're in the very best sort of condition almost to to be able to have that 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 procedure which means that they have less complication the safety is better and the clinical outcome for the patient is better absolutely and with all that said how does a shift towards delivery of faster care close to home balance with things like pressures on primary care on community care services what's important to consider in this regard will some people's roles change so, so I think, um, you know, for a long time, we've, we've built up that services almost sort of circulate around a hospital um, and, and actually then pretty quickly, they also circulate and gravitate around the primary care, the GP practice. I think if we're going to offer patients a fair, relevant offer for today's society, then we've got to really con consider the wider roles, the role of the allied health professional, the pharmacist, the clinical nurse specialist, the role of the voluntary sector in this in this space too, because we grossly underestimate the amount of time and support that comes from the, the voluntary sector to, to enable patients to stay well or prevent them from becoming unwell in the first, the first place. So there's got to be a collective um, effort and coming together in this space. I think um, ICSs um, uh, are designed to to give a mechanism for that to happen. But I think, you know, as, as Rob, you said, they're in their early early establishment points as yet. But I think I think I'm, I'm very optimistic around this. Ultimately, we'll have to have the, the right workforce. Um, and and I think going back to what I said, technology to support the back office function may well help in terms of overall sort of um, smoothing pathways in this space. But um, you've got to you've got to got to match the two together. I was just going to make a comment um, on that point. Um, there are already mechanisms around that can be utilised. So NHS England's uh, referral optimization for inflammatory skin conditions is a really great blueprint that already exists that showcases how primary care 
primary and secondary care can um, support each other. So the, the, there are things, It's I guess it comes back to the question that was asked before around scaling up and, and sharing um, the, output, the outputs and the impact that these things are having on services. Rob? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I, I think I, I suppose the, the Oxford example is a good example. Um, uh, so I think you know we need to see uh, more specialist migraine community clinics. Um, um, I think that, that would absolutely ease the pressure on on the system, including A and E and secondary neurology uh, departments. Um, yes, we know that's, that that they work really well. You know they're often run by GPs with special interests and, and, and nurses. But there are only 63, 64 GPs with special interest in, in headache and migraine. For a condition that affects 10 million people. So we need to look at that. I think there's only about 70 headache nurses. So there's there's the other bit around, you mentioned, I guess, workforce. And it's really hard, isn't it? Because everyone wants investment in the workforce. But I, I guess in terms of migraine, we think that, that there is an opportunity that actually you will benefit from health and cost savings with the right investment as well. Um, and I think this is probably not quite part of the question, but, but in terms of, I guess, the generation coming through, we're hearing a lot in terms of the education, uh, what's happening at medical schools, um, there's very little focus on headache and migraine. So if we go right back to the very, very start and make sure people are given the right knowledge and information about migraine and how to treat and care for, that will improve primary care across the board and reduce, I guess, more, more people being currently who are being referred to secondary care because they haven't been given that opportunity instead of education and knowledge about my migraine. And on that, Rob, in terms of educating the patient, can empowering the patient like that help them take control of their own their own pathway? And what benefits does that lead to them, the providers, the clinicians? It's hugely important, without without a doubt. Um, so, I mean, the headache diaries I talked about before that that that's a great opportunity to have a conversation with, with their healthcare professionals that understand, I guess, what's happening with the, the pattern of attacks and the, and the triggers. I think that's a big opportunity. Um, I think, you know, GPs recommend this, some of them, those in, in secondary care as, as well. Um, that, that there's something around, I guess, the, the migraine patient from fever we've had from focus groups who fed into the pathway that's going to go live quite soon around the patient being seen more as a partner. Uh, and I think that's something to, to all look at as well. So quite often, I guess what we're getting from the from from the people that are coming to us is, is that they are perhaps given their treatment, off they go. They're not followed up. They're not looking at things like self management, and self management must be a, a shared thing. And there's a lot of there's lots around self management. Um, so so I think it, it, it's 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 how we can see how that can be in, in improved. Um, and, and and I think what happens then also is it improves other areas in terms of their mental health. And I think we haven't even talked about mental health in that's that's in a whole area. But I think in terms of, you know, it's 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 if people are feeling they're having the right conversation with a health professional, even if sometimes their health doesn't always improve, psychologically that has a major impact as well. Um uh, and so that's another whole key area as well, because I guess quite often we, we're getting feedback again, I go for the focus groups that sometimes people feel either that they're not believed, they feel like they're a burden, not necessarily from the healthcare professional, but also with their families and friends. And this all feeds into the, the challenge around migraine. And there's a whole separate piece of work about raising awareness of migraine to the general public uh, and understanding and breaking down a whole, all the myths and stigmas that surround it. Um, I'm digressing to a degree here, but but I think it, it's I think that the mental health aspects of being understood 
um, and, and being given the right conversation. I guess, as you said, uh, I guess the, the communication, communication, communication bit, Sue, I think is very, very, very important. Rachel, power and patience, education. I think um, we've mentioned a few examples earlier around things like PFIOS or patient issue follow-up um, as one area that could be used to support patients making decisions um, about when they when they are seen. But I think one important piece um, that I, I, I think would be good to point out is around how do we empower patients to have confidence and understanding their disease area or their own diseases um, in order to have a, I guess, a more effective conversation with their healthcare provider, whoever that might be, whether it's a pharmacist or a secondary care physician, whoever it might be. Um, so that the the that dialogue is meaningful for the patient and they can get what they want as well. And um you know, again, when we think about those kinds of initiatives, you know, we try to think about how do we engage patients around their diseases and using um, websites and things that perhaps will help signpost patients to uh, educational material and, and getting them skilled in the disease that they've got. I think that's just an area that I think perhaps um, I, I wanted to highlight as a, something that we haven't maybe discussed previously. Absolutely. Sue? Yeah, so I think in, in terms of, of, of PIFO, I mean, we've said at the start of it's 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 a not one model. It's not one model that fits all. Um, and I think your your point around, you know, patients need to be confident in terms of, um, particularly if you're going to use PIFO, they've got to be confident in terms of knowing when to trigger um, an appointment. Equally, I think from a clinical perspective, um, PIFU shouldn't be used as the default when actually if PIFU didn't exist, you would have discharged that patient. Um, so there is there is there is something around that too. You know, we have to be to be clear that actually it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable to discharge patients from from um, some service once their their condition's been treated. Um, I think um, one of the things that I would flag is that patients who are on PIFU pathway, then for both the patient and the clinician, there needs to be a really effective tracking mechanism um, to enable that patient to a trigger an appointment if they if they if they meet the sort of criteria. But similarly for um, the clinical team to know that that patient's triggered um, as, as a result of that. And I think there's there's a lot of um, myth busting we need to do in that space because it's actually technic technologically not that difficult to do that. And I think people have a view that potentially they'll be overwhelmed with people triggering appointments. And actually the reality is it's probably not that's not the case. So I think, you know, for me, this is about confident patients, clinical leadership, and being really respectful that not one model fits all. Can I just uh, talk a bit more about the PIFU piece? Um, we did some work with some rheumatology services around PIFU, and what became um, quite obvious to us that once that work was sort of shared and we were discussing it, other services were coming forward saying, yeah. we're really interested in this. How do we go about setting up this particular service? And um, it became very clear to us that we, we probably needed to help services connect together so that they could understand what are the pitfalls, what are the hurdles, what are the things they need to consider in order to set up um, a PIFU service that would be successful and mitigate some of the challenges that you beautifully articulated earlier about that not that one size fits all. 
So, so it's it's very timely that this week we've we've launched with um, GERF, so get it right first time colleagues, some outpatient guidance for the top ten by volume specialties, and within that, it's very particularly targeting. Um, sort of junior doctors, people in training as much as those people who've been delivering service for a number of time. And it identifies pathways by subspecialty that would be suitable for PIFU, those that wouldn't be suitable. And um, within it collates all the best practice guidance of, of, of really where you start. And, and what we've said on an individual basis, we're we're very happy to 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 support and make the connections for people to do to do that. It's just a really interesting area. I'm almost coming back to the the, the use of, of tech to, to to actually again. Does it always have to be the follow up with the same person? And I think it, it it's so again. I, I guess with migraine, quite often, I, I guess what people are saying is that often they're prescribed a medicine, but they're not followed up, and then you got the risk of either one, it's not quite working, medic medication abuse, headache, etc. But actually, again, if there is something in the system, uh, I remember again going back to the, the, these focus groups I, I was talking about. That I think one of them on the group said that they also suffer from asthma. That they have a that there's just a note on the system that they have a 20 minute annual review follow up. But that doesn't happen with migraine. Don't know what what other conditions it does or doesn't follow up. Um, so I guess it, it's probably in my mind probably very again not very clever, not very techy. But but can those things be put in place? Um, so could that follow up be with? The local pharmacist, for example, it doesn't have to be with the GP. So I guess it's thinking slightly wider in terms of how that process might be able to work. Rob, if you don't, if you, if, if I can come in on that, I think what we know um, with absolute certainty is that there is incredible variation um, across every type of pathway across the country. Um, predominantly, most tech has an evidence base, but the evidence base is so wide but for each subspecialty um you you can get sort of common touch points but follow-up ratios are are uncommon um so some some practices may be one to one some may be one to eight um very very variable and i think certainly our intent of, for working with the the GERFT um, program is to really start to put a bit of a spotlight on that unwarranted variation, and to see where we can bring bring in some some greater levels of consistency. But I think you know I would be lying if I said that that was sorted. We're a, we're a long way. Um, you know, a long path to tread in that in that respect. And it goes back to what you were saying around. You know how how the the future medical workforce um, and nursing workforce are all all trained as well. So we've really got to to start at the very very earliest point, and we've got to start with patients, children. Um, you know, not patients, children, patients and children um, uh, as well, because this is a this is a big change. Absolutely. With that all being said, as a roundup, in your opinions, what three things are having the biggest impact on pathway efficiencies? Relieving capacity, and what do you think is the most important job still to be done? Start with Rachel. I think for me, the the most important piece of that we've been discussing is there isn't one thing that's going to solve everything. It's going to be a collection of different tweaks and modifications and embedding of different things in order to to achieve the outcome that we're we're trying to achieve for these patients. But also being really clear about what those those outcomes are. You know preventing disease progression and associate disability and that these patients do come 
are often very complicated in terms of the, the presentation, um, that we should be using that as the aim and, and the, the process or the pathway facilitates the outcome that we're looking for for that patient. And things like PIFU and education, remote monitoring will be part of that solution. I don't believe there's one thing that's going to um, solve everything. Rob, three things. I think probably number one, probably we talked about before about training for GPs and pharmacists, I think is key. Uh, to helping people get be supported in the right place at, uh, at the right time. Um, most people, I think, as we touched on, living with migraine could be supported in primary care. Um, but there's a bit about up-to-date knowledge and how we can, and I think it's how we can support uh, those in primary care uh, to get the right information in, in the right way. Um, I think that that's really important. I think we need to see more people trained uh, to be specialist uh, GPs and nurses uh, and looking at those good examples in terms of community best practice. I think that's going to improve patient experience and it will reduce pressures on, on A&E and hospital neurology departments. And the other thing I suppose which touched on before is around ICSs that, you know, to make all this happen, you know, we, need, we want to see the leadership from, from ICSs to improving their service design and then the flow within their areas based on the understanding of their own particular community. Uh, and I guess the other bit is about seeing a, a named lead in each area of them to review the needs and the services. So I think for me the first one is is can do and enthusiasm. So um you know I started off by saying people, you know, have been through inordinate life-changing experiences. So it's building on on sort of building enthusiasm for, for providers and systems to drive change forward to want to do it i think it's a whole pathway approach so don't look at bits of the pathway look at the whole pathway communicate collaborate and um uh, congratulate would be the be the be the other one i would say we've got to increase the use of technology for the right reasons so so don't buy ipads for ipad's sake use them in the right the right place and i'm being a little facetious there and then finally i think on the more to be done i would say that whole the whole context of behavioral change supporting patients in terms of expectation and help and um that adaptation to new ways of accessing care is going to be a key um, pillar of the work we have to do taking forward. Absolutely. And I hate to be that guy, but it is last hours at the bar. The bell has rung. So I'd love to speak to you all for a lot longer. But as a final roundup, where can people find you if they want to learn more about all this stuff? You can find me through um, LinkedIn. Um, you can find me through um, NHS England, um, through contacts there, um, and obviously um, uh, through yourself, Louis. Absolutely. Rachel? You can find us um, at abv.co.uk, where there is a, a myriad of different information about some of the work and initiatives that we're working on and how this really does align to a lot of the topics we discussed. Rob? I can say the Migraine Trust, yeah, yeah you can find us on uh, migrainetrust.org. If you want to have a catch up with me or get in touch with me, uh, look at that for me on, on LinkedIn as well. Absolutely. And that's been the latest episode of National Health Executive's Finger on the Pulse podcast. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time.